0: The scandal of the evangelical mind is that there's not much of an evangelical mind. That's how the church historian Mark Bale, began his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, in 2010. The scandal of the evangelical mind is that there's not much of the evangelical mind. It's a devastating assessment of the evangelical church that's made it all painful and legitimate, because Noel is himself an evangelical. In fact, in 2005, Time Magazine, Time magazine named Mark one of the 25 most influential evangelicals in America. He's well acquainted with the evangelical church, its past and its present. And if anyone is qualified to offer such a critical assessment, Mark Moore. and yet he speaks his critique in love and hope. he does not to deconstruct the evangelical church, but to perform it and twig us up, to spur, spur us towards change, to get us thinking again. This is the spirit of this sermon, as well. Over the past several weeks, beginning in the middle of September, really, we've spent Sunday mornings unpacking the new mission, vision, and values of the First Presbyterian Church, and providing some of the theological support for these statements. And Advent, will we'll begin to, again, work through a book of the Bible. But for the next three weeks leading up to Advent, we'll take a value statement and, and look at it in line of scripture. There are six value statements so we'll only get to half of them. But the one we're exploring this morning is the life of the mind as an integral part of the life of faith. That's one of our values, statements. The life of the mind as an integral part of the life of faith. On a list of what we think about is why does this one make the cup? Well, there are a couple of reasons. The first is because God has given us minds; They're a gift. And the way to express our gratitude for this particular gift is to think rigorously, to fully engage our minds in order to better understand God, humanity, and the world in which he has placed us. Now, thinking minds are not, of course, the only or even the greatest gift that God has given us. He's given us bodies and souls and hearts. We're not just thinking creatures. We're also embodied creatures with feelings, and hair follicles, toenails, and corneas. And when Jesus is asked in Mark 12 which commandment of God is the greatest of all, he responds by saying the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wants all of us, including our minds. But what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your mind? We don't really have a good answer. Because in evangelical circles, we have come to neglect the life of the mind. This is the, the second reason why this guy may neglect. Because evangelicals to we belong as members of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church have come to a place where the life of the mind is not valuable. But we want to preserve the life of the mind as an integral part of the life of faith here at Presbyterian Church. We want to respond to Jesus' call to full discipleship, full love. Perhaps it would help to define what is meant by the life of the mind. one provides us with a, a definition that's helpful. He writes, By an evangelical life of the mind, I need more the effort to think like a Christian. To think within a specifically Christian framework across the whole spectrum of modern learning, including economics and political science, literary criticism and imaginative writing, historical inquiry and philosophical studies, linguistics, in the history of science, social theory, and the arts. The, the life of the mind just this vague, esoteric, and esoteric exercise but a work of freedom. It's the commitment of Christians to go into the arts and into quote-unquote secular fields of study and reshape them in the light of Christ. What would a Christian economic policy be? How, do, how does Christianity influence its interpretation of the history? What's the relationship between faith and science? Now, there are, of course, some evangelical Christians who are engaged in their life of mind at this kind of a level. You might point to Francis Collins, the former director of the National Institute of Health, as one of those exceptions. But by language it's a fair criticism to say that Christians have not been influential outside of spiritual circles for several decades and have been seen in the arts, the sciences, the economics, itself as secular control and investigation. That's and a concession reflected not just at the elite level, but at the common everyday level as well. is that the Christian author and social critic, has some challenging words to say to the evangelical church. He writes, evangelicals have been deeply sinful in being anti-intellectual ever since the 20s, 1820s and 30s. Those evangelicals, we don't think he writes, it's always been a sin not to love the Lord our God with all our minds as well as our hearts and souls. But we have excused this with a degree of pietism and pretending that this is something other than what it is that is sin. Evangelicals need to repent of their refusal to think Christianly and to develop the mind of Christ. And to be fair, it isn't hard to see how we arrived at this place. The American historian Richard Hofstadter traces the thought process that's led us here. He writes, One begins with the hardly contestable proposition that religious faith is not, in the main, propagated by logic or learning. And one moves on from this that the idea that it is best propagated in the judgment of Christ and on historical evidence by people who have been unlearned and ignorant. It seems to follow from this that the kind of wisdom and truth Possessed by such people is superior to what learned and cultivated minds have. In fact, learning and cultivation appear to be handicaps in the propagation of the faith. And since the propagation of faith is the most important task for humanity, those who are as ignorant as babes have the most fundamental virtue, greater strength than people who have addicted themselves to logic and learning. Accordingly, though, one shrinks from a bold statement of the conclusion, Humble ignorance is far better as a human quality than a cultivated mind. What Hofstadter are saying is, we look at the 12 disciples and we observe that many of them are superficial. Jesus himself is a mere carpenter. Paul, despite receiving an elite education, is willing to call rubbish and insist on knowing nothing but Jesus and him crucified. On the other hand, we're the people Jesus was constantly chafing against and rebuking, the educated, religious leaders of the day. In Paul's case, he was ridiculed by the Athenian philosophers. They scoffed at the idea of a resurrection of the dead. And it was Pilate who authorized the crucifixion of Jesus, the educated, right? the elite, were the ones who missed Jesus. And it would seem, therefore, that there's danger in cultivating the life of the mind, that there's danger running in circles. Better to, as Hofstadter wrote, live in humble ignorance and persuading life of mind. But their conclusion does not follow from the observations about the disciples or the Athenians. Dr. Roy Jones, a famous Welsh pastor and medical doctor, once warned a group of college students if you are up for intellectual respectability, you'll soon get into trouble in your faith it's a warning that has caused evangelicals to look at intellectual pursuits and conclude that way danger lies but again that's not unnecessary Lloyd-Jones is warning about the pursuit of respectability through no intellectual pursuits not intellectual pursuits on their own he was after a medical doctor so to do Paul condemns the Greeks for their pursuit of wisdom not because he's opposed to the life of the mind and finds it Dangerous to pursue knowledge. Paul himself was one of the most educated men in all the Jewish world. But Paul is opposed to mind and soul and pride. Paul is opposed to using intelligence as a measure of a person's worth in under the world's eyes or God's. Paul makes it explicit, explicitly clear in almost all of his letters that nothing about us influences God's opinion of us in his work of redemption. He moves towards us of his own will, not because we are normal or beautiful or funny or rich or intelligent, No, we were dead, Paul says. There was nothing attractive about us. If God in his great grace chose to pursue us in love, nonetheless. we are saved by grace through, sin, through faith, which is itself a gift of God, so that no one may boast. No one can point to anything in themselves. The reason why they believe in someone else doesn't, our, doesn't, our intelligence, our, our knowledge, has nothing to do with it. And yet, Calvin points out, our mind's lack of influence in God's measure of us does not mean we to ignorance. He writes, by being fools for Christ, we do not mean being stupid. Nor do we direct those who are learned in the liberal sciences to jettison their knowledge, and those who are gifted with quickness of mind to become dull, as if a man cannot be a Christian unless he is more like a beast than a man. The profession of Christianity requires us to be immature, not in our thinking, but in malice. Maturity in thought is negligence at best, which Osgidus so boldly declared clear sinful. It's to neglect the gift of God, a great gift. It's It's a a neglect neglect that can actually belong to the church, put your soul in a normal state. For example, a church willing to to fully explore the knowledge that can be gleaned through observation of the world is likely to create unnecessary stumbling blocks apart from Jesus. Jesus alone is to be the stumbling block for anyone considering Christianity, and again as No points out, even evangelicals have gone back to thinking that we must shut up one of God's books, which is nature, if we want to read the other one, which is Scripture. The antagonism between faith and science has created a stumbling block that Christ did not himself introduce. There are, of course, stumbling blocks that Christ introduces. The sexual ethic of Christianity is certainly going one today. But exploring the world God created in order to grow our understanding of it is not a stumbling block he introduces. It turns out, for instance, that the world is round. You don't get this from the Bible. And it's much, much older than we originally thought. Now, it's important for everyone to remember that science, and science can only explain what is, but it cannot exist within the lot. Science cannot tell us what is the best course of action. Tim Keller is frequently pointing to the German philosopher Jürgen Habermas, who argues that science can tell you what you can do and how to do it efficiently, but it can never tell you whether you ought to do it. Science can't get you from the is to the ought. It can't give us a basis for morality. And if that is the case, Keller adds. Will not be able to order our society without recourse to religion or faith of some kind? But will the church be there to provide the laws? That's the question. Or will we have removed ourselves from the conversation and taken up a position of antagonism?
1: Will we be absent?
0: It's also important to remember that the Bible, particularly Genesis 1 and 2, was not written as a scientific textbook. Its purposes were other than providing us with the scientific trees, the purposes of the Bible are are theological and historical and tell us about God and ourselves. And as such, there's room for science and scripture to complement one another. We can read both books. After all, it's God who brought both of them into being, but we have to listen. Engage in the conversation with, with scientists if we're ever going to influence the field or remove the unnecessary stumbling block that keeps people from coming to Christ. It can be armed harm to the church. It can also put your soul in a vulnerable place. A neglect of the mind can put your soul in a vulnerable place. Ephesians 4, the, the apostle Paul says that Jesus. Has equipped the saints in order that they might build up and strengthen the church, in order that they might educate the church. So that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by the ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Paul is advocating for the edification, for the education of the church, so that we can live in a culture where truth is not easily discerned. And yet, remain steady in our faith and active in our world. And this requires a knowledge of the world, of God, of ourselves. It requires that we're reading widely and learning, rather than merely being entertained. If your news comes from primarily one camp, say like CNN or Fox News, then read and listen to the other as well. Take them seriously in order to understand them, and you'll be able to better and more winsomely apply the mind of Christ to the conversation. Let us engage in our intellectual conversation in our, in, in our interactions that move beyond small talk or sports or joking. Just about what matters. Let us grow in knowledge in order that we might grow in love for God's better. Knowledge and in love should not be opposed. Who among you, if you're married or in a relationship, would ever attempt to separate love and knowledge in that relationship? Is it possible for you to, to know your, your spouse or significant other without knowing him or her? Is it possible to know your spouse without loving him or her? The two can't be separated. I want to separate the two here at 1st Presbyterian Church. Jesus has called us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength for our sake, for the sake of the world, the sake of the church. And we want to be the sort of evangelical church that views the life of the mind as an integral part of the life of the faith, and be ready to engage the world, the mind of the rest. in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.